I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Hello, I'm sitting here with Dr. Kelly Windle in a hotel room in Melbourne where we've just been spending our first day of our current Thought Leaders Business School immersion. And I wanted to have a conversation with Kelly about who she is and what she does and what she loves and what she stands for. So welcome, Kelly. Thanks for having me, Mel. Very excited to be here. Absolute pleasure. My first question, and we'll get into who you are and what you do in a moment, but my first question is what does connection mean to you? Connection to me is an expression of genuine care in any way that's real. Can you give me an example? I think a lot of people think they connect in today's age and the simplest example of not connecting, which I know is the reverse of the question you just asked, but let me get to it, is, oh, hi, how are you? Yeah, fine, thanks. God, I can't tell you how much I hate that. Yeah. And especially when the other person starts talking over you before you've even finished saying, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, some people (laughs) don't even let you answer. So I think to me an example of a genuine expression of care is, hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Okay, tell me about that. Rather than, oh, okay, good, moving on then. Or even just getting rid of that question, hi, how are you? I hate that, how are you? Because there's an expectation that you'll either say, I'm fine Mm. or I'm busy. Yes. And I'm busy. It's a nice little social experiment I've been doing over the last few years, actually, is people say, I'm busy. I go, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I like that. People go, oh, but no, 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 but it's a good thing. I'm like, oh, really? (laughs) Tell me about that. (laughs) And then I'd be tempted to say, busy is the enemy of kind. (laughs) Are you being mean to yourself? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes, lots of little habits we're in in this busy world that get in the way of connection. Yep. And in the way of living a great life. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think want- people often ask, you know, how do I connect more? Especially leaders are like, how do I connect more with my employees? I'm like, care about them. Yeah. Actually stop, pause, center, take time to actually see and hear them and care about them. They don't need much. Yeah. They Show just interest. need to know that you care. Yeah. That's all connection is. Ask them about something on their desk. Ask them who's in that photo. Absolutely. What's your cat's name? Yeah, absolutely. It's so powerful. Yeah. Our CEO, where I'm currently employed, our CEO, Mark Fasella, is a very connected leader. And years back, he visited one of the sites and one of the uh, assistants there had all of these snow globes lined up and he stopped and he asked her about them. And we had this very brief conversation and off he went. And a week later, because he was currently working on a different continent, so he'd gone back, back over there, a week later in the mail, a snow globe of where he was back home, came through to her with a little note saying, oh, I thought this might suit your collection. It was nice to meet you. Oh, That site oh, had 300 people at it. Not one of them didn't know that story by the end of that day. <sighs> Not one of those employees would, they would walk across hot coal for this man. Wow. Because of that one gesture of genuine care. And I asked Mark about it a couple of months later and he went, oh, yeah, the snow globe thing. So it wasn't even on his radar as a big gesture. It was just normal and natural for him to actually stop express genuine care and interest in somebody's world enough to then remember it. And that's what I meant about connection is an expression of genuine care because if he, you know, lots of people would have stopped at that desk and passed comment because it's obvious, yeah, there's a whole line there and then it would have gone out of their their minds the minute they walked away because they were stopping to ask because they felt they should, not because they were actually genuinely interested and cared. Well, they might have walked away and thought, what a freak. 
snow globes. Yeah. Really? Or just dismissed it and just gone, oh, yeah, that's fine, whatever. He actually passed a snow globe somewhere and went, oh, yeah, I remember that connection that I had. And then he took an action behind it. So there is an action component to it, the demonstration of genuine care. You can't connect just by going, oh, yeah, I feel connected to that. It's not enough. It's two-way. You have to show and feelings need to be displayed before that connection can really occur between humans. That's an awesome story. I love that. Yeah, it's a good one. Hey? A guy I met in the US tells a similar story. He only drinks root beer. He drinks water and he drinks root beer. Doesn't drink coffee, doesn't drink tea, doesn't drink alcohol, drinks root beer. And he went to visit a client in their office in some little town in the middle of Midwest in the US and the client put a six-pack of root beer on the table. <laughs> nice. But it wasn't just any root beer. It was a root beer that was made at a factory in that town and you could only really get it within their community or within that state. And he said, I know that you love root beer and I thought that you might like this while you're here. So here's a six-pack to take Mm. and here's a cold one for you to drink now because I know you don't drink tea, coffee or alcohol. And I don't think they'd ever met or had a conversation about it. But this guy had done his research and realised. Perfect example. Yeah. Like you just go straight to a deep connection there, right? So it would be so easy to say, oh, yeah, I heard you like root beer. Tell me about that surface, right? I'm just signalling that I've researched you. But to actually take the action behind it because you've then invested, you're, you're showing that person that I've actually invested my time and my activity to connect with you and that's so much deeper lots of shallow connections in today's world and you've gone out of your way yeah exactly and one of the things that I say to all of my clients is you don't need to make a big gesture or spend a lot of money to connect with somebody through caring and kindness absolutely it's so so important and it's really frustrating to me that more organizations um, are not zoning in on this. I mean, you look at one of the most successful for decades now, the most successful conglomerates is the Virgin Group, right? Richard Branson. Every single company of his has a capability that they measure their people on. And literally it is in your performance measurement and supervisors are held to account for, you know, if I'm working with you, Mel, I have to let you know how you're going against this thing called Virgin Flair. And the definition of Virgin Flair is making a difference in somebody's day. Richard Branson, for decades now, has fundamentally engineered into the infrastructure of every single business that he touches that has the Virgin brand a mechanism that ensures a level of care and connection to his customer because his mindset and his vocalised mindset, and if you do training with any Virgin group, they train you on this, is they are not customers, they are not consumers, they are guests. We are creating an experience for them and therefore I'm not going to pay any attention to them. I'm going to put all my attention onto my people because they're the ones touching our guests and the people that are interacting with us. So if I invest in them, they'll invest in them and it, it ricochets on. And his investment is I will connect and care for you so you can connect and care with the people we are serving. That's connection. And that's been going on for decades in that group and it remains to this day one of the most successful conglomerates in the world. And yet other organisations are slow to jump on board. They don't get it. It's really, really interesting. I worked for an organisation a few years ago doing some internal comms and I had a half an hour argument with the person who I reported to who was the executive director of a division with 12, 14,000 staff. He reported directly to the CEO and we, I wrote an article for him to go in the company magazine and there was a sentence in it that said, our staff are our most valuable resource and he crossed it out and resource. said, our customers are our most valuable resource. And I went, you can't say that. <laughs> 
he said, but it's true. And I said, no, it's your staff. Your staff need to be your most important aspect of your company because if you don't treat your staff well and show them love, they're not going to pass it on to the people that are paying no, you. Not. And he couldn't understand that. But even these basic language resources. Oh, let's dehumanize us yeah. more, please. I mean, it's yeah. it's insane. I have a lot of conversations with leaders who go, you know, how do I build capability? And I don't know. I say, connect with people, show them, tell them what you're trying to achieve, connect with them, and then say, how do you want to contribute to that? Ask them questions and show an interest. Yeah. And that doesn't come from treating them like yeah. resources. <laughs> and don't necessarily say, how are you? But say, what are you reading today? Yeah. What are you working on Get right specific, now? right? Yeah. 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 How can I help you do your job better? Yeah. When's your next holiday? What are you looking forward to about Christmas? What did you do on the weekend with your family? We ask these questions in real life. So it's more and more, I think, a disconnect for people when they come to work and they're not having those types of conversations and mm. those types of connected experience because yeah. they know it exists. Yeah. And more and more we've got generations coming through and people coming through going, it doesn't have to compartmentalise. That doesn't have to exist only in life. That should also exist at work. Exactly. Because we're the same person at exactly. work and at home. Exactly. You could bring your whole self to work. Exactly. I have a client who um, I've worked with for years and frequently he'll say to me, can you email this person? And he'll send me his contact card for that person from Outlook and it will have, you know, name, address, position, mm. all the contact details. But he keeps a really detailed notes section on everybody and it will start with, at the top, the date that he met them. Mm. There's always personal information about them, yep. wife's name, husband's name, kids' names and ages, dates of birth, dates of anniversaries, mm. where they met, what they talked about. And the whole history of their interactions will be on it. Mm. And I read the first few times I looked at this and just went, oh, my God, this is so detailed. But his job was as CEO of a research centre was to build networks, create engagement and get money. Yeah. And he brought in millions and millions and millions of dollars because he was master networker because he knew how to relate to people and he knew whenever he rang anybody, he could say, how's your wife, Jill? Mm. The last time I spoke, she was in hospital for whatever. Yeah. How's she doing now? Yeah. Or how's your son, Bill? The last time I saw you, he was graduating from high school. Or how's your grandchild who was, you know, one when we last spoke? And yeah. it builds that rapport. It does. And so people want to do things for him. And then when he says, can you give me a million dollars for my project? Exactly. They go, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they'll fight for it. They will because they're bought in and there's this concept of pay it forward as well behind that, which yeah. I think has been lost a bit from the world. It's like pay it to me now and I might pay it back to you later. Like That's completely flipped. As, as humans, we're wired for social exchange and we're wired for equitability within that exchange. So we need fairness within that. So we set up an implied expectation. If I do something for you, even if it's genuinely with no expectation of return, it does create this sense of a future promised obligation in return. That's what connection is. Now that makes it sound quite mechanical and mechanistic and it's it's not meant to. It's actually just describing the psychology of social contracted expectation sharing between people. It's how humans work yeah. and we do that in every relationship and we do it especially in our relationships at, at work. And when those obligations stop being exchanged that's where we get a fundamental breakdown in relationship and you get all sorts of toxic culture issues or retention issues, very, you know, bottom dollar line issues because we haven't bothered to connect. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. You alluded to your employer. You've recently joined Bluescope as the Vice President of Organisational Capability. I have. What is that? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I know. I like to say I, so when people ask me what I do, I say I make great human beings at work. That's fundamentally what it's about. But if I was to define organisational capability, Capability is the power you have at any given time to achieve something. So organization capability is the power an organization has to achieve what it wants, which is generally articulated through a business strategy. So organization capability is the power we have to execute our future strategy. So what my role is, I'm not there to build organization capability. I'm there to make it as easy, efficient, and commercial as possible for every single individual in that business to create the capability they need to achieve what they're trying to, to allow the business to execute on its strategy. So it's very um, very future-focused. We look at a lot of capability design. So we're looking out front, like in five years' time, if that's what we're needing to deliver, what's that taken? And we map that back to where we are now. There's a lot of conversation with people across the business around, so what do you need to do that? It's a great conversation to be having because it really recognises that every single person within that organisational system that is blue, blue scope in this case, contributes to the power of a business to execute its strategy. So as a psychologist, when you ask that question, what do you need to do? I'm assuming you don't just mean what do you need in terms of hardware, software, computers, no, absolutely. It's what do you need yeah. in your head to get you in the right spot? Absolutely. I think that's that's part of it. So I define capability in, in organisations, I define capability as ability plus capacity plus commitment. So what abilities do you need? That's the, your individual or if I'm looking at an organisational level, the collective set of skills, experience, uh, competencies, qualifications, accreditations, whatever you actually need at an ability level, plus the capacity. And the capacity is often dictated by organizations. In, individuals can influence it, but organizations fundamentally set up that these are our goals, these are our constraints, these are the resources, this is the focus we'll give to this. This is how we set up the infrastructure of the business to guide and direct behavior. That's that's the capacity piece. And as I said, individuals can influence that, but often it's built into or you engineer it into well, the infrastructure of the business. That's everything from its systems and processes through to its behaviors and its cultural practices that, that go into that. And then you've got the commitment piece at the end. So mostly you end up talking with people about ability plus capacity, kind of assume commitment is there because they've signed a contract and they're working for you, but that's very dangerous ground for people to get into as well. <laughs> and you're assuming they read the contract before they signed it. Well, and- you're also assuming that the terms of the contract didn't change two hours after they arrived because business has changed so fast. So you sign up when you join as as, as a, a person. Yeah, so if you, if you came and you joined my business, you would sign a contract and you would sign that contract under the expectation of here's how you are going to contribute to my business and here's what you're going to receive from me in return. But the world moves too fast. So within a day or so, you're doing scope creep, right? You're doing that, but maybe a little bit more, or maybe I have slightly different needs. And then over time, you know, what happens in organizations, new strategy, new market disruption, new team members, new, like any change that happens, a small one or a big one, prompts a shift to the terms of that original contract, not the paperwork of the contract, but the actual psychology of what I'm expecting, what I believe I've promised you in return for what I believe you've promised me. And we set that up to be fair and equitable when we sign up, otherwise we don't sign up. And then over time that can change. And if we don't keep recontracting that, 
we get into quite sticky ground because suddenly one party or the other sees that the other's not contributing to the level that they should. I feel I'm giving more than you. I feel I'm giving less than you. And that puts us in a real sense of cognitive dissonance when that happens. We really, as humans, we like that to be equal. That's that obligation piece I was talking about before. So the the academic term around that is the psychological contract. So what I'm doing in the organizational capability space is I use psychological contracting at an individual level but at a macro level across the organisation to to understand and make a bit more overt and start some dialogue and conversation around, right, terms of contract are changing, how do you want to contribute now? Do you still want to contribute now? Because you might not, but here's where we're now going. What might a contract change look like? A new boss? A new boss, a new strategy, a new colleague, a new development plan, a new customer request, a new way of processing something in a plant. Anytime we change the terms of how something gets done and we don't meet the implied promises within that. So uh, let's take a, a very tangible one. So we're now changing how we process steel, for example, at this mill. The whole process is being changed and we're using automation now for parts of it. What does that mean for the individual who was previously working on that line? Mm. Changed everything in their mind. And there's a lot of fear at the moment around automation in a lot of companies uh, going, I'm going to be replaced by machines. Like that whole dialogue around transformation is really interesting. And I think organizations have a lot to answer for and leaders have a lot to answer for in why they're not reassuring people and removing that fear. Because all people are saying why we're reacting with fear is I don't know what my role in that's going to be. And therefore, I feel like the contract's going to end on me and I have no say or it's going to change on me and I have no say rather than actually saying, yeah, we're going to be doing this to allow us to talk to you about how else you still contribute in that or not. But either way, actually have the overt conversation. Things are changing. And that's that's the bottom line. People go on and on about, oh, we need to manage change. You don't need to manage change. You need to stay connected through changes in circumstances with people and allow dialogue around that. Then you're managing change. But we try and manage change through the things we can see rather than the things that people are experiencing. For me, one of the biggest issues, I guess, around technological change that seems all-consuming in so many organisations is that managers and leaders think that it's about the technology Mm, but it's not it's about the people and it's about how do you allay the fears of the people like you said that they could be replaced by an automated process or they're just made redundant because their position isn't a part of the process anymore of any automated or not and I certainly know from my experience in leading big change programs the conversations and the arguments that I had with my superiors saying you need to tell them what's in it for them. Mm. You can't just say this change process is going to save us a few million dollars a year or more because people don't care. You need to connect it. If you do it, <laughs> if you, this is what it means for you, yeah. you know. One program I was involved in, the biggest question was who will I sit next to mm. on the first day mm. after the change has hit yeah. D-Day? Where will I be? Where will I be? Where will I, be? Where yeah. will I belong? Because it's uh, been proven, I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs was was mentioned today and I always laugh when it is because Maslow's hierarchy of needs was debunked like decades ago and nobody's caught up. It's just got this pop culture traction. Where and, Wi-Fi is now the number one the most important thing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but, but what a lot of uh, social and psychological research shows is actually belonging, social belonging underpinned by connection is the number one need. That's at the bottom of a hierarchy of need and humans will go without food and water 
in order to belong to a social identity group. And it is such a high need that people will actually put their physical safety and longevity at risk in order to still feel connected and belonging. So the question of, well, who will I sit next to speaks so clearly to that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really quite fascinating. And I think organisations still buy into that because they still buy into the fact, the myth, I would call it now, that technology is the biggest disruption. It's not. Technology's now hit an equal platform. Most people have access to the same technologies. Yes, there are some specific R&D technologies in businesses that will still give an advantage. But even ahead of that, the advantage and the disruption that we need to anticipate is not through the technology. It is through the ability of people to adapt their behavior and psychology to the technology because technology, you need to adapt to it now. So the advantage and on the flip side of that, the disruption that I see in organisations is where people are or aren't adapting to technology. And it's not technology adapting to them. It's the other way around. We're at the other side now of the technology revolution. We're not at the start where it was the tech. We're at the end where it's the human that's the actual disruptor or advantage, depending how they approach it. Yeah, I don't think we're at the end. I think we're somewhere on a continuum. Sure. Because <laughs> I think there's always going to be technological disruption and change and there'll be new things that we don't know sure. about and can't even begin to predict. Sure. Who would have imagined 15 years ago that we'd be here podcasting in the way that we are? Yeah, exactly. With a little machine that's the size of my two hands together. Well, it's smaller than most phones used to be, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's about the size of my first phone. Yeah. And all I could do on my first phone was make phone calls and send text messages. Yeah. And that's it. I know. And that's, we used to call that connection, right? And now, I mean, look at our conversation today. Connection it underpins absolutely everything mm. that's going on in society, but also in, in the world of work. And ironically, most people don't use their phones now to make phone calls. No. <laughs> It's text me, it's email me, communicate with me through a messaging app or through private messaging on Facebook or Instagram or Mm. LinkedIn. I've had to look for a message earlier today and I couldn't remember where that person sent it. Yeah, which platform was that? Was it, yeah, was it LinkedIn, was it WhatsApp, was it a text, what was it? And it was a text and I thought, oh, good. (laughs) Old school, I like it. Exactly. (laughs) So I want to ask, how did you get to be an organisational capability specialist when you started out years ago as a trained singer? (laughs) Well, I actually think that performing arts and psychology are very much one and the same (laughs) in many ways. And uh, so I said to my mum when I was, I don't know, 18 or 19, just out of school, I said, mum, I'm going to be a singer. She went, and I'm going to be an actor. And she said, that's lovely. Why don't you go study psychology? And I went, I'm not seeing the connection. She's like, you'll have deeper understanding to your characters and to scripts and to whatever, you know, so why don't you go and do that? Clever <laughs> Which mother. Is a clever way of very saying, let's get clever. you a backup career happening here. And she was very wise because I absolutely loved psychology. I never had any intention of working as a psychologist. I just loved studying it and I did love applying it to, to scripts and to singing. But what I found along the way with singing is that singing is a beautiful way to connect with, with others and to connect with people. But for me, I wanted, I was really curious about why that connection existed and how you go deeper on it. So for me, having psychology in parallel with with the creative side, that's just the course that my interest and in my life started to take. So to answer your question of how did I end up in organisational capability, 
I think to do organization capability the way I do it, it's create capability to create the future in my mind. And the biggest words in there is create. You need to bring a creative approach. There's no one size fits all linear approach to creating the capability you need. Why? Because what you're trying to achieve is going to be different to what the next person needs to achieve. So I can't give you a cookie cutter solution. So for me, organization capability was an area of organizational psychology, which was my, my professional qualifications are psychology applied to work which we call industrial or organizational psychology and for me the the creative lens and the the singing and so I was trained in musical theater so I was very focused on storytelling and on connection so bringing that through that was the area of organizational psychology that really resonated with me and that's where I started to focus and build my career what I'm really interested in is that it's create and it's create, create, create. It's not consume. Yeah. And a guy I've met a few times, Dan Norris, wrote a book called Create or Hate. Yeah. And he says you need to be creating more than you consume. Mm. So if you're consuming two hours of Netflix, mm. you should spend two hours and one minute a day creating something. Yeah, nice. Whether that's baking a cake or yeah, creating like a meal it. or writing an article or doing a painting, mm. you should spend more time every day creating than consuming. And I really like that because. Important, right? That creativity is what sparks imagination and interest in things and a connection with people who you might not know or who you might think you've got nothing in common with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like that. What's your favourite musical? At the moment, Come From Away. Oh, I really want to oh, go and see it that. it is <laughs> fabulous. Why? Because it is all about connection. It's the best example of storytelling I've seen on stage wow. in, in years. And can you give a brief synopsis? I absolutely can. I'm obsessed with the show right now. So Come From Away, it's based on the community in a small town called Gander, population about 10,000 people in Newfoundland, which is the easternmost point on that northern American strip down Canada and, and northern America there. And on September 11, they had 38 planes diverted to Gander and over 7,000 passengers stranded there for five days, which was not quite their population but pretty close to. And this community just opened up their doors to these strangers from around the globe that were, were stranded there. So the the musical is non-traditional in the sense that it doesn't sort of start and finish with here's the clear story. It's more a beautifully melded and integrated series of stories and characters. All of the actors play at least one townsperson and at least one passenger or they call them the come from aways so the come from aways of the people who got stranded and the stories all interweave they cover every single emotion and topic that you could imagine set against this incredible context of an event that was truly tragic and traumatic for the entire world and yet at the same time as that's happening such moments of hope and connection and humanity it's a good question to ask me in context of a connection podcast, Mel, because why do I love it so much? I love it because it speaks to the deep human connection that exists despite evil events in it. Based true story. True story. I find most musicals instill a deep connection about something that is often not what it would appear to be on the surface. Yeah. 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 That's the beauty and the charm of theatre. I see a lot of theatre and, and live performance because it is so deep and authentic and more so for me, more so than uh, film or TV, which 
just has a bit more of a polished and an edited view. Not all. I absolutely love film and TV as well. Again, it's about the story, right? But live theatre has that plus the live connection. So the Melbourne production of Come From Away, which I've seen twice already, is also fabulous because of the connection, visible connection between the actors. You can actually see the work that has gone in through rehearsal for them to connect at a really deep human level themselves. And I had the amazing opportunity after the second one of meeting one of the cast members purely by accident. I'd taken my mum to the show and was standing at the traffic lights walking home and mum had the program I'd bought for her and this lady next to her goes, oh, did you like the show? And my mum turns around raving going, oh, it was fabulous. Oh, my God, you were in it. And (laughs) this woman went, oh, you recognise it? She's like, yes. And she walked 20 minutes with us and we had this amazing conversation and she was talking about, as a performer, it's one of the most connected experiences she's ever had. And I said to her, why is that? Is that the, the material and the topic? She said, yes, in part. She said, but there's also five other productions of this around the globe and we've connected with them all. There is such a sense of connection through those particular stories at that particular time that she said the rehearsal process and the creative process just went so much deeper and connected not just the cast together but the cast across the, the globe together as well. It was really beautiful. And that comes through on stage, I believe. You can see it. It's um, it's beautiful, beautiful story. One of the things that I love about live theatre and musicals and opera and ballet, or maybe not ballet, but um, <laughs> orchestral performances yeah. and had a few ballet scars, yeah. scarring experiences as a child. <laughs> but one of the things I love is that there's nowhere to hide. In film and TV, if you get it wrong, you can just do another take. Yes. And nobody will but know. Live you can't. But live you no, can't. You can't. It's yeah. warts and yeah. all. It, it is, and it's at every single level. So they've done studies where I, I go to the symphony a lot too, and I nearly every time I go I think about this study that I read once where they measured the brainwaves of musicians and the brainwaves before they start playing are all in, they're not in sync with each other. Everyone's got their own individual brainwave happening within 10 seconds of the conductor picking up his baton and that pause before they start. And then they all start together pretty much by the time they've started playing within the first literally 10 seconds, all the brainwaves have synced. And they stay in sync through the duration of the piece and they stop playing and the applause starts and within 10 seconds they've gone back to individual wave. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's amazing. It's incredible. So you think about the next time you're watching a group of musicians on stage playing together, when they're that connected in at that level of creativity and focus, it is so deep that it is affecting their brainwaves. Wow. I know. I love it. I was in a couple of concert bands when I was in high school yeah. and at university, yeah. and I wish I'd known that then. Well, do you remember how you yeah. felt when you were playing in the oh, Biggest high. Yeah. Loved it. I was crap, but I loved it. You loved it, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's that's what creativity allows us to connect even when we're crap, yeah. to use yeah. your language. And it is, it's that deep level mm. of connection to something, mm. which brings us back to our conversation around, well, why do we have this craving to connect like that? Because we need to belong. We're fundamentally social beings. That's how we survive anthropologically. Mm. We are not a solo species. It's hardwired in us to connect. Yeah, and for me it was just spending time with people who loved the music yeah. and who loved performing together yeah. and who loved that connection yeah. with people who shared that passion mm. yeah mm. and so most important. of us were terrible but yeah. it, it wasn't the point it didn't wasn't matter. the point yeah. the audiences loved us or yeah. they said they did i don't know if they really did because we were pretty bad but <laughs> we had fun yeah. and i think that that enjoyment yeah. overrode technical challenges oh, a lot of the time absolutely. and how often have you been to a, a performance or seen somebody technically brilliant followed by somebody not nearly as technically yep. brilliant 
but so much more connected to mm. it. And who does the audience like? We don't like watching clinicians no. or technicians. No. We like watching the people who we connect with. And as humans, we connect to vulnerability. And passion. And to passion. And to see somebody trying, to see somebody having fun, we respond to that. We naturally mimic that state and that emotional state in ourselves. Mm. It's almost like our emotions start to come into sync. Yeah. And uh, that's, again, why we need to focus on driving connection from a place of genuine care and not tokenism. One of my favourite musicals is Lemmy's, yeah. and I've seen it four or five times. Mm, and score. the most memorable performance that I loved the most was done by an amateur theatre company yeah. in Canada. I want to say it was in Medicine Hat, Alberta. It was about 25 years ago. Yeah. And I will never forget because it wasn't perfect, but the passion came through so much more than the performance I saw by the professional yeah. team in Sydney been a couple of years earlier. have been doing it every day for three years now. Yeah, and yeah. who I saw again 10 years later and then I saw the movie. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's not discuss the movie. <laughs> but my husband, who'd never seen the musical, loved the movie. Yeah. And he couldn't understand why I wanted to walk out after 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> but he'd never seen it live. Mm. And I took him to see it after the movie, and he didn't enjoy it because it wasn't the movie. Yeah. And I said, oh, I should have taken you to see the live the performance live yeah. before yeah. we went to see it. Yeah. at the cinema. I'm pulling faces. <laughs> <laughs> so um, do you have any tips for people who want to learn more about music? Yeah. Open your mouth. Sing in the shower. Just sing. Just yeah. just make noise, you know, in the car, dashboard drummers. Just dance around your living room. I think the biggest thing holding people back from being creative, which is the essence of your question, like, you know, what do you advise to people who want to sing? You know, the obvious one, go get a lesson. No, don't actually, don't do that. It will constrain you because suddenly you're trying to do it right. Actually, what you're trying to do, if you've got an instinct to create in any way, be it through music, be it through cooking, be it through painting, painting, and, yeah. and we're talking, you know, the traditional creative arts, but creation comes through a lot of things. You create at work every day if you want to. Creation is just playing around with new ways of doing things and bringing something new to life. And it should feel imperfect and it should feel a little messy. And if you go to a lesson straight away, you're going to feel the pressure to not be messy and to be perfect and it's going to get in the way. So my, my advice to anybody wanting to start anything that they feel is remotely creative is challenge your own bias first around you're not a creative person. Creativity is fundamentally built into us. There's a fascinating study that was done by um, one of the leading NASA scientists, I forget his name, but um, – when Kennedy said, we're going to the moon, and the scientists went, right, okay, how do we get people to the moon? So this guy was brought in to work out, well, we need to find the most creative minds in, in America to come work on this. And they found the top 2% of creative people, like creative adults, and they stuck them all in this program. Anyway, they, they get to the moon and that, that whole story winds out. And uh, this scientist left, well, I found my people, now what do I do? And he went, well, let me apply this to a student population. Let me see, you know, what, you know, 2% of adults had the level of creativity we needed to solve something that required such a new approach. So let me go and look at kids and see if a similar, like, you know, what's that look like in kids? And he went to, um, I think he started with six-year-olds. And guess what percentage he found demonstrated the same level of creativity as the top scientists that he'd brought together? I'm guessing 100%. Yeah, 98. He measured those same kids. They went, that's really interesting. And they said, well, let's do that longitudinally, as good researchers do. So they measured them again at 10. Guess what it was down to? 60. 
Yeah, about that, about that. And then they measure them because what happens then? Oh, just ten. They got to school. What happens in that age bracket between six and ten? Peer pressure. They start to compare developmental psychology generally around the age of sort of around six, five to six when we start school is when we start to become aware of us, of ourselves in context to others and we start to try and assimilate and what we do there is we start we stamp on our creativity because that's saying create be different we go actually i need to conform and be the same so guess what the percentage was by the time kids were 16 three five it was still up in the teens it was 16 percent wow and by the time they'd finished school in their early 20s by the age of 20 two same as the scientists back in the age my point being we all have innate ability to create, if you're asking how do I even begin to do that now, the first thing is just get out of your own way, tap back in. And how you do that is through play. Adults don't play. Kids play. They practice creativity day in, day out. And yet as adults, if we if we play, we're looked down upon. I say to my team all, all the time, I said, I haven't seen you guys staring out the window today. You know, what, what have you done to to just think, to play. Oh, no, I've been very productive. I've been very busy. I said, I'm paying you for your brains, guys. You at a computer typing away or in meeting after meeting is not you giving me the full value Mm. of your brain and the full creativity that I need. We're in the transformation space here. Mm. We need to be creative. So to answer your question about, you know, what's my advice to somebody who wants to sing, challenge your self-belief around I'm a creative person or not and then just open your mouth, pick up a paintbrush, so, pull out a packet mix to get started baking, whatever it is for you, just start and don't judge yourself and that's the hardest bit. In episode three, I had a conversation with Steph Clark, who's a reformed accountant turned facilitator and she's an accredited in Lego yeah. and yeah, Lego cool. serious play. Yeah. And so most of her yeah. facilitations are she whips out the Lego set and she gets people to create things yeah, using Lego. Fabulous. And she said every now and then there'll be somebody who will explain what they're doing with words. Yeah. And she says, no, you have to explain what you do by making something out yeah. of Lego. A different way. Different and way of communicating. it's very confronting yeah. for people who don't believe they have creativity. Yes. It's really interesting. It is really interesting, but we're all attracted to it, right? You look at all of the most popular TV shows, particularly in the reality TV space, what are they on? MasterChef. There's Mm. that Lego show at the moment. There's all these other ones that people, even even, um, the the block, the building ones, that's that's people creating. Yeah, they're building stuff. Building is creating. I think a lot of people, I challenge their language sometimes. They go, I'm not creative. I say, would you say you build stuff? Oh, yes, I build stuff all the time. I said, well, then I would say you're creative. So let's just call you a builder rather than a creative. Same thing. But yeah, it's the number three future critical skill as identified by the World Economic Forum. Number three wasn't even on the list two decades ago but to survive in today's world of work and today's world full stop you need to be cultivating your creativity how do you do that engage in play play being defined as purposeless activity i don't want to um disparage anybody's parenting skills particularly as i'm not a parent but i look at the children of some of my friends and they have a defined activity that they have to do Mm. all the time Mm. and I look at them and think when do they get time to play and you know they get time to play when they're at childcare or they're at home on the weekends but once they start school or sort of turn four or five we over schedule there's so many activities they have to do and I think when do they just a lot of pressure when do they get time to be bored yeah and when do they get time to just be by themselves and have to entertain themselves and come up with something that's going to keep them occupied that's creative and using those creative juices in a way that's going to benefit them then and well into their future. Yeah, critical skills. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. As yeah. always, we've just about run out of time. <laughs> I don't even know how this happens. <laughs> 
Good um, conversation. Time flies. I know. I just have a couple of other questions. Please. On your website, and we'll give the link to this at the end, sure. you say, I have a passion for reimagining what's possible. What are you reimagining at the moment? Everything. Ugh, Absolutely <laughs> everything. I am reimagining. I, I can. So I'm reimagining an awful lot in my world of work. So five months ago, I, I started with Blue Scope. So I have my, my I'm full time with Blue Scope currently, and I have my practice running as well. So I'm completely re envisioning how that practice model works because it needs to work with really low hours now. And I'm completely re envisioning and reimagining. Everything my remit coming into Blue Scope was a complete review and redesign of how we approach organization capability. So, uh, to me, I just go, that's reimagining. Yeah. And, and it's like everything's up for grabs. And there'll be bits within that that we keep, obviously, but you reimagine how you can use it, how you can apply it, what can come out from that. And then I'm a more personal level at the moment. I'm reimagining my sources of creativity and my sources of joy. So I've recently commenced cello lessons again. Oh, fantastic. After I took it out and just played around with it. And that, that was really interesting itself, right? Because I very excitedly arrived at my my first cello lesson in about 15 years and um, a bit nervous. I used to be reasonably okay at it. Um, I haven't played very much in recent times. And I sat down and the teacher said, okay, let's start with C major scales, which is the most basic scale you can play. And he was just looking to see what my technique was like and I was sitting there in the chair and I've got my fingers perfectly placed on the bow and perfectly placed on the fret and I'm very carefully not moving anything except the bow and my fingers and I'm so conscious of exactly what I'm doing and I'm remembering all the technique training that I had and I'm trying to do that and I play this scale. I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, it sounds terrible. Maybe it's the strings. No, maybe it's me. Oh my God, I don't know. What's he thinking? Like total insecurity going through my head, right? And I stopped and he went, right, okay. He said, stand up. And he sat down and he said, this is you. I looked at it. He said, what do you see? I'm like, complete and utter tension everywhere. And we spent an hour and a half playing C major scale. My dear to, hell. No, it was amazing. It was like almost this spiritual experience because he said, we're going to just play it. He said, and I don't, he said, I don't want any technique. I don't want any tension. He said, just just relax, mm. go floppy, just move. He said, you should move. He said, it's so still. He said, you've got to move with the instrument, feel the music. And it was this real moment for me. I went, ah, oh, that's, that's where I'm at in life right now. I'm so constrained and controlling in how I was approaching things that I have been doing for some time or used to do really well. And I'm trying to do it like that, which is completely at odds with my work and my principles around it. I'm like, ah, so that, that was this real amazing hour and a half. It wasn't boring at all. I love C major scale now. It's like the most amazing thing I've ever heard to play it in a really relaxed way because it changes the whole tone. Uh, so it was, it was beautiful, but more than that, my reflections on it were I need to reimagine how I'm approaching my things that bring me joy. I'm I'm stripping the joy from them, trying to be perfect again. And it's yeah. a bit of a uh, my mentor um, Richard Huseman, who you know, um, threw a term once at me. He said, "Oh, you're a classic perfectocrastinator." I think he called it. He basically merged perfectionism and procrastination. He said, "You're a perfectocrastinator," and I went, "Oh my god, I hate that," and it's totally true. Yeah. So I'm reimagining at the moment in my in my 
non-work world, how to bring more joy, more play, like we're talking about today, in in new ways because I found that the ways that I was using to play and access joy weren't actually bringing that. I'd got to a point where I was then trying to be good at it again. I'm like, that's not play. And then you need to bring it into your work world so that you can instill that joy Exactly. Your yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really. So yes, I am literally reimagining everything I possibly can at the moment. It's quite delightfully chaotic. Nice. <laughs> One of my neighbours was dating a flautist for a while, yeah. and she plays in an orchestra. And she was staying with him for a few weeks, and she was practicing the scales for about four hours a day. And he came over and apologised, and I said, "For what?" And he said, because it's repetitive. And I said, I used to play the flute as a child and a teenager and a young adult, and my scales never sounded like that. And if they had, I would have probably yeah. stuck with it. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's so music. <laughs> please tell her to continue yeah. as long and as loud as she wants because I'm just reveling in it and I'm actually opening up my office so that I can hear her more. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's yeah. beautiful. And the difference is when you're all tense and tight and trying to control the outcome of it, you're not connected to it. She's connected to it. You're yes. responding to that connection. You can hear it through the walls, yes. her connection yes. to it. All comes back to it was connection. beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Are there any books or podcasts or anything that you've read recently that have really resonated? I'm rereading Deep Work by Cal Newport at the Such moment. I love it. I'm rereading uh, it too for a third time. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good one to revisit because, again, it reminds me to – continually challenge and let go of that tension and control that you bring in. And that's not to say we shouldn't have tension and control, by the way. There's a place for that. And I think um, Cal talks really beautifully to that tension throughout the book, Deep Work, because he's not saying you should only deep work. He's saying you need to be very mindful that the outcome you get from deep work versus more shallow or distracted work is very different. It's not dissimilar to Daniel Canahan's Thinking Fast and Slow. We do need to be very conscious of the, the, the psych in me coming out now we need to be very conscious about how our brains work and that's why play is so important because it's using our neurons and our brains and forcing new connections in a very different way to what non-play work does mm. and it keeps us much more like it keeps our brains actually much more agile and plastic and uh, deep work to me and Daniel Kahneman's work on thinking fast and slow it's like that it's almost like we need to be really conscious about the ways in which we use our brain and the environmental cues we need around us in order to use them in particular ways so, yeah, I always um, have a bit of a, a total psych geek moment when I'm reading Deep Work going, yes, it's that, it's that, it's that. And uh, also I love it because it's so pragmatic. His latest book I'm even enjoying more called Digital Minimalism, yeah. which came out early in the year and I think I've read it three times and just love it. Nice. I like that on my list. I've yeah. seen it. I've heard a few people mention it. How do we lose our reliance on technology yeah. so we can deeply connect? Yeah. And yeah. it's just his uh, – um, It's so important. Uh, someone said to me the other day, who do you want on your podcast as guest? He's, <laughs> he's, said he's, highly, he's very high on my list. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Well, I look forward to yeah. listening to that podcast. Yeah. One day. Yeah, it will happen. <laughs> One day soon. If anyone knows Cal, please tell him. I would <laughs> love him on my podcast. <laughs> please introduce us by email. You'll get me at mel at melkettle.com. <laughs> Total fangirl <laughs> <laughs> don't ask, you don't get. This is very true. So are you reading anything else now or is do you read for pleasure as well? I generally have sort of three books on the go. I tend to have one of this nature that um, I do love, uh, but it is apply. I do read to use it and to apply to my work and to myself. Then I generally tend to have an autobiography on the go as well and I'm – a bit late to the game, but I'm uh, reading Michelle Obama's Becoming. Such a great which book. Which is fabulous. I'd like her on my podcast too. <laughs> Anyone knows her? <laughs> Again, 
Uh, and then I generally have a fiction one as well, and I'm reading this beautiful uh, book called Of Steel and Wool, or Of Wool and Steel, I forget which way around it is. And it's a translation of a Japanese author whose name I also can't remember, sorry Mel. It's about a piano tuner, hence the Of Wool and Steel, or Of Steel and Wool, whichever way around that is, uh, because pianos are made of the hammers are made of felt from wool and the strings are made from steel. And it is this beautiful fable about this young boy who hears a piano being tuned in his high school auditorium and it it just completely shifts his world. That's what I have to do. He's so drawn and he'd never even played piano or heard piano much before. He's just completely drawn to it. He goes and he studies for years to be a piano tuner and then he comes back and he trains under masters and it's fundamentally a fable about the pursuit of purpose and the pursuit of perfection but creative perfection knowing you'll never reach perfection within that pursuit of purpose and the lessons you learn along the way of letting that go in order to move further to your purpose. So it's uh, this beautifully written tale. I mean, I am reading the translation. I'd wish to be able to say that I could read it in Japanese, but I cannot. And it's quite lovely. I'll send it to you once I've finished. I think you'll enjoy it. It in itself is about true connection of this Mm. person to what he's doing. I think we need to feel connected to what we do professionally Mm. because if we don't, how can we do it well? Exactly. Or even if we're not doing it well, how can we do it truly in service to others? Yes. And which is deepening that social connection yet again. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It is. And on that note, I'm just going to say thank you. And before we go, where can people find you? They can uh, find me at Dr. Kelly Windle, so LinkedIn, Twitter, Insta. Um, they're all the same at drkellywindle.com. <laughs> and the website is, funnily enough, drkellywindle.com. Great. <laughs> so I'll whack those all in the show notes. And thank you so much. My absolute I, pleasure, Mel. As usual, I have a list of questions we didn't even get to. So <laughs> maybe we'll do this again sometime. But that was it's just pleasure. so fabulous. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Stay connected. I will. You too. <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.